0: The animals and a meeting by the river. A selection from the book The Animals, love letters between Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi, with commentary by Catherine Bucknell, followed by a dramatic adaptation by Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi of Isherwood's novel A Meeting by the River. The Animals, presented by Catherine Bucknell. Simon Callow as Christopher Isherwood. Alan Cumming as Don Bacardi. Music by Edmund Jolliffe. If you like this podcast and think more people should hear it, please rate it, review it, and subscribe to it. Episode 1. Introduction to the Animals.
1: It was a pale gray envelope, business size, and, and my name on the outside, it was written in the most beautiful handwriting I'd ever seen. These tall, thin verticals, glamorous loops, Utterly distinctive. It's like a kind of signature I didn't know I was capable of. Don Bacardi has exquisite control of his pen. He'd written airmail in red ink on rectangles of brown paper cut out and glued to the outside of the envelope. To the simplest words, he gives so much physical genius. Blue ink for my name and address in London. Blue ink for his address in sun-dazzled Santa Monica. This was Christopher Isherwood's address where Bacardi and Isherwood lived for most of their 33 years together. Now, I I had received a lot of these envelopes over the last 20 years. They were always the first thing I noticed in my post and the one I saved to open last. But what more was there to send me? I had just finished editing the fourth and final volume of Christopher Isherwood's diaries, over a million words, telling everything about Christopher Isherwood between 1939 and 1983, a few years before he died. Or so I thought. I opened the envelope a little fearfully. Inside was a typescript. Two hundred fifty letters Isherwood and Bacardi had written each other between 1956 and 1970, half their years together. It was a secret world. I felt I knew Isherwood well as a writer. Bacardi had become my close personal friend. In fact, let's use first names here. I had no idea Don was working on this typescript. I had pried and snooped endlessly around their relationship, and I had settled too soon. Out of respect or politeness? How much should a middle-aged, straight, married woman with children know about the private life of two gay men? Don was beckoning me deeper into their world, inviting me to read their mail. Would the letters be too personal? Was I invading a sacred space, or breaking a taboo? I knew about the ups and downs in their relationship. The many other love affairs, the fact that they had nearly parted for good. Don had never held anything back. I also knew that the dark times gave way to what they called the animal's golden age, at the end of Isherwood's life. I knew that in 1968, they were the subjects of one of David Hockney's first two double portraits. He began painting them that spring. Two men at home in the living room of the house they shared, a prophecy of gay marriage. I knew they had become, in Armistead Maupin's phrase, the gay first couple. What lay behind this public status? The message to me inside the gray business envelope was that I still didn't really know. Moved in together in 1953. Chris was 48, an internationally acclaimed writer. Don was 18, just starting college. Two men, 30 years apart in age, setting up house together in the conformist 1950s it was bold, not to say reckless. Yet the heart of the adventure for them was not what was hidden from outsiders, but what was hidden from themselves. The mystery of the relationship between them, which was to unfold over the next 33 years, until Chris's death. What drew them to one another? How did they stay together for so long? Christopher Isherwood, you know, the, the public Christopher Isherwood, the author of Goodbye to Berlin, on which Cabaret was based, of A Single Man, which Tom Ford adapted as a film, the playwright, the screenwriter... Arguably the greatest memoirist and diarist of the 20th century, he found on several attempts that he couldn't write a book about his relationship with Don Bacardi. It was sacrosanct, and it was too elusive. His diaries contain plenty of brief descriptions of Don and of events in their life, but Chris always leaves off with a sigh, a sense of awe at what he couldn't articulate in writing, this wild, rich, inner life that in the end is more meaningful and more authentic than anything conducted in public or for public show. In the autumn of 1955, for Don's 21st birthday, Chris took him on a grand tour—North Africa and Europe. On their way home, they stopped in England for two months. That winter, 1956, was harsh, and Chris went alone up north to his native Cheshire, to the countryside near Manchester. He spent a week there with his 87-year-old mother, Kathleen, and his brother, Richard, seven years younger than he. He left on in their London hotel to spare him the primitive accommodation and the bitter cold at the 15th-century stone manor house where he'd been born, Wibbersley Hall. These solicitous arrangements are reflected in the tone of the very first letter he ever sent Don. Christopher Isherwood, famed for the detachment and poise of his prose style, is anxious to return to his younger lover, longing to please and reluctant to impose.
2: Wednesday, February 1st, 1956, High Lane, Cheshire. Dearest Donny, I wonder so much what you're doing. And I hope so much that you're having fun and interesting adventures. Wednesday. When you get this, it will be Thursday. And then there will be only Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But I mustn't get rattled. I keep looking out anxiously at the snow which fell last night, and wondering if more will fall and block the roads. But I'll get through somehow, like in that Courbet painting The Diligence in the Snow at the National Gallery. This house is as damp as a sponge and cold. You can see your breath even when standing by the fire. The sheets are damp like grave clothes and the books on the shelves smell of corpses. And in the kitchen and scullery there are very old smells of dried fat in skillets and old, old black rags that are quite frighteningly filthy in a 19th century way, like something out of Oliver Twist. I don't say all this just in complaint. A lot of it is hilariously funny or very touching. I'm glad I came alone because it's really easier to take. I spend a lot of time scrubbing things. If only the pipes don't freeze. My mother is absolutely marvellous. Sharp as a needle, sees well, hears perfectly, remembers everything, talks all day long. Poor Richard is turning rapidly into a prematurely aged freak. His face around the nose is dark purple. Bad circulation, I guess. And he's lost several of his teeth in front. And he walks with a stoop and keeps his head down. But he's so kind and gentle and anxious to help. He fills my bed with hot water bottles, leaving marks on the sheets because his poor hands are chronically covered with coal dust. He's forever building fires or making tea, which is pure liquid brass. They have two white cats. The female has a black smudge over one eye, and she is fat with kittens, fathered by the other cat, her son. She is one of the best-looking cats I have ever seen, and she doesn't give a shit about any of us. If I didn't hate the cold so, I'd admit that this place is marvellously beautiful. Cobden Edge, the first ridge of moorland behind the house, is all white, and there is a strange orange light on the snow. The bare trees are so black against it. Cheerful stamping men in mufflers bring milk and newspapers. Unless I send a telegram to the contrary, I will arrive at Euston Station Monday afternoon at 1.55. No need to meet me if you have something else to do. I just tell you so you'll know approximately when I'll be at the hotel, about 2.30. Leave word for me there if you're not coming to the station, but I hope you do. Imagine, this is the first letter I ever wrote you. I think about you all the time, and about times I might have been kinder and more understanding. And I make many resolutions for the future, some of which I hope I'll keep. In any case, all my love, Chris.
1: To amuse himself in London, Don had started writing a play about his mother and father, I hadn't realized how interested he was in writing and in the theater. I'd met him only as an accomplished portrait artist already in his 50s, living alone in the house he once shared with Chris in Santa Monica. In his first reply to Chris, suddenly I could hear his much younger voice speaking from half a century before. This magical, irresistible boy who I knew from the diaries had made Chris as happy and as unhappy as he'd ever been. Suddenly, that young man was speaking.
3: February the 1st, 1956, London. Dear Chris, it is freezing here. It snowed most of yesterday and even began to lay on the iron steps outside the window. But today it has all gone, and though clear and sunny, it is much colder. I am still in bed. It's past twelve, because it's the only warm place. I have been reading and working on my play. I'm amazed. I worked three and a half hours yesterday morning and three hours this morning, and now I have eight pages of solid notes and, I think, a very good outline for the first two acts. I've managed to think up a surprisingly well-constructed plot, although there's not much of a story, and already I know roughly what the third act will consist of. I feel quite silly, especially in the afternoon and early morning when I think of writing this play. But nevertheless, it is going well, and it is fun. It's a very heavy drama. I hope that isn't a mistake, and not very original, but with a few surprises. As of yet, you have not appeared. It may very well be a thing of the past by next Monday. I really haven't written more than just a few snatches of dialogue yet.
1: As you can hear... Already in their first three years together, Don, that all-American boy, had picked up Chris's British accent without even realizing it.
3: John, I don't even know his last name yet, Cuthbert's friend, called yesterday morning and took me to fresh airs last night. I thought a review was essentially based on gags and laughs but right in the middle of supposedly funny skits were very serious, straight-faced, sentimental numbers with nothing but the corniest lyrics. The amusing gags were all very proper except for a terribly shocking skit about a Paris pissoir and some asides from Max Adrian, who got in drag, too. But the funniest thing was a political skit making fun of America doing her all to make Germany happy. John and I got along quite well, He's really very nice and has a lot of the same difficulties that I've got, so there's quite a bit for us to talk about. He even invited me to spend a few days with him in Cuthbert, but I firmly refused, for various reasons. I think he is interested in me, but I most definitely don't reciprocate any kind of similar interest. I miss rides through London on old Dobbin, especially in the snow yesterday. And think a lot about him, sleeping in a strange stable, eating cold oats out of an ill-fitting feed bag, and having no cat fur to keep him warm. And don't let them put any frozen bits in his mouth. And tell him an anxious tabby is at the mercy of the RSPCA and counting the days till his return. Love, Don. Don's
1: letter is signed with a paw print over his name. Dobbin and Tabby are pet identities, the animals. Chris was a stubborn gray workhorse. Don was a skittish, unpredictable white kitten, usually called Kitty. As I was reading through the letters, I could see that over many years, Chris and Don elaborated on their pet identities as a way of reacting to the events of their lives including the events of their imagination, like books or films. The animals evolved as a kind of game or masquerade, a camp, let's say. They spoke about the animals in the third person, distancing themselves from the sentimentality in which the animal identities allowed them to indulge. So the camp freed them to explore the serious matters of love and commitment and to reveal themselves more fully to one another. The animals are mentioned in the diaries, but they are everywhere in the letters. Cute, kitsch, sentimental, but also profound, mysterious, eternal, and in glimpses, utterly savage, surviving off each other, tooth and claw. A young man craving knowledge and security, An old man cannibalizing the vigor of youth. About four months after returning from England in March 1956, Don decided to quit college and go to art school. He'd sketched faces since he was about five years old, or or maybe even younger, mostly movie stars from magazines. But his father had fiercely disapproved. Jess Bacardi worked in the aviation industry for 30 years, mostly at Lockheed Aircraft. Despite his intelligence and his flair for mechanics, Jess's progress was limited because he never finished high school. Don always made a point of getting straight A's in school so his father couldn't criticize how he spent his free time. Now that he had Chris's unequivocal support, he enrolled at Chenard Art Institute. He quickly excelled at life drawing and portraiture. At home, he practiced by drawing Chris, who never tired of posing for him. In 1960, Don got his first big assignment as a professional portrait artist when the British stage and film director Tony Richardson invited him to New York to draw the cast of A Taste of Honey for exhibition in the Broadway theater lobby, This led to other East Coast theater jobs, posters for Period of Adjustment by Tennessee Williams, and for a play in which Julie Harris was starring. Tennessee Williams, Julie Harris, these were old friends of Chris's. She created Sally Bowles in the original Broadway stage production of I Am a Camera in 1951, and she became famous overnight. To Chris, no other actress would ever be Sally Bowles. Don's letters about these trips were full of riveting backstage gossip, but also they began to reveal to me just how daunting it was for him to leave home. He'd grown up in a small apartment. His mother, a polio survivor with a limp that embarrassed her, was painfully shy. She couldn't afford babysitters. She spent what money she could save taking her two little boys to the movies. The family had taken occasional vacations by car. Together with his older brother, Ted... Don ventured onto the beach at Santa Monica where he made new connections. Also, incredibly, the brothers had learned to dress up in their best suits and sneak into movie premieres where they boldly approached the stars and asked for autographs and to be photographed together using a camera they always carried. Don has a photo of his teenage self with Marilyn Monroe, 16 years old at the Academy Awards in 1951. Imagine that. Infiltrating this fantasy world, the movies, it took nerve. But the brothers were always together. Chris introduced Don to a wide new world. Foreign travel, airplanes, celebrities who were intimate personal friends. But Chris also protected Don every step of the way. So it took all Don's courage and self-discipline to pull away from his sheltered life with Chris And from this productive day-to-day regime they had, writing, painting, going on the beach, sharing meals... Traveling solo, Don would arrive at any destination completely drained and wondering why he had come. Nevertheless, he soon decided to take a much bigger step away. He was nearly 25, and he wanted to explore the world and his talent on his own terms. Chris was determined to encourage him. Stephen Spender, the British poet and magazine editor, close with Chris since the 1920s, offered to help Don get a place at the Slade School of Fine Art. A wealthy Californian, Russell McKinnon, came forward as a patron, providing funds for six months of study abroad. In January 1961, Don moved to London, alone. The animals found the parting excruciating. Tender, aching letters flew back and forth as Don made his way by stages to Manhattan and then on to London. Chris went around the house in Santa Monica in Don's old sneakers to feel nearer to him. Don was so miserable that he couldn't work when he got to London, and he felt both disappointed and overwhelmed by the Slade. But he wanted the challenge of solitude, and writing home to Chris strengthened him. He stayed briefly with Stephen Spender and his wife, Natasha, a pianist. Then he took digs offered him by Richard Burton and his first wife, Sybil, whom he'd seen in New York when he broke his journey there. He was too shy to involve himself with many of Chris's London friends, though he grew close to the socialite Dr. Patrick Woodcock. Through Woodcock, he was able to meet casually with the painter Keith Vaughan, who was his tutor at the Slade.
3: February the 6th, 1961, London. My dearest love, to start with the good news... Sybil and Richard Burton have let me have their house in Hampstead to live in since Richard has committed to Camelot until next December, and that means they will be in New York till then. The house is very comfortable and snug, just built a few years ago and so fitted with all the modern conveniences that we would take for granted. Richard offered it to me when I went backstage after Camelot to see him. I thought at the time it would be so much better to find my own place and be absolutely on my own in some stylish little flat in the center of London. Hampstead seems so far out. Three days of hunting for some such stylish little flat, dealing with housing agents and lodging bureaus and tedious landladies, cured me of any such notion. I am in the house now, sitting up in their double bed, in fact, thinking, as always, of my darling Dobbin, and how terribly I miss him. But more of that later. Richard's brother, Ivor Jenkins, and his wife, Gwen, whom we met when they were in Los Angeles about a year and a half ago, have a house of their own directly across the street and have been very kind and helpful to Kitty and are so eager to please. The house I mean is legally theirs because Richard is supposed to be strictly a resident of Switzerland, so they know their way around it and explain everything to dense Kitty. And it is not so far away from town, after all. It takes me less than half an hour to get to the Slade on the underground, and I don't even have to change trains. It is a relief to be away from the spenders. Stephen took trouble to take me out to dinner one night, and then took me to the Slade to introduce me. But the second evening I was there, Stephen asked me if I could be out, because they were having a dinner party, and had as many people as could be sat around the table. All this is, of course, understandable, And yet, I couldn't help feeling uncomfortable and in the way. And of course, it was altogether a bad time for me, and I probably read all kinds of meaning into their behavior because I was so upset. The person who has been an angel is Patrick Woodcock. I called him in desperation, and he immediately understood how I was feeling and was so kind and warm and helpful. He has taken charge of entertaining me and has already managed aside from everything else, not only to get me into Covent Garden, but for a very glamorous opening, Britain's Opera of a Midsummer Night's Dream. He got me a seat in the second row, dead center. Of course, the opera was a bore, except for John Piper's sets, but it was fun to see Covent Garden at its best. John Gielgud's friend, Paul Anstey, and Patrick went together, and we all had dinner afterwards. Keith Vaughan turns out to be one of Patrick's dearest friends, and we all had drinks on Sunday. Keith is very shy, and we haven't yet really made contact, but I am hoping. Oh, my dearest darling. I've tried to keep this letter fairly bright, but I really am so awfully sad. And I miss you so very much. I need you so. I really don't know now whatever possessed me to come to this place. The only thing I seem to have done, really, is to create more problems rather than solve any. Everything that I thought was wrong with my life in California, all the problems I felt trapped by there, I have brought with me to London. And I've left the dearest treasure I had behind me, unguarded. I certainly never knew before how much I need you, my love, good or bad as it may be. I do need you and feel lost without you, and long to hide myself in your mane and sleep warm against your flanks. I honestly don't know what I'm doing here. And the thought of painting, of wanting to paint, is farthest from my mind. The slate is really no different from any other school I've been to. Sloppy, dirty, disorganized, bored teachers and bored students and bored models... Mind you, I've spent less than a day and a half there, and yet I feel I know it. I can smell the same old smells and sense the same situation that always makes me retreat into my fur and hide there, silently disapproving and scared at the same time, paralyzed with apathy. Later. Please don't fear that Kitty will crumble. He believes that his Dobbin will always be there, And that belief is so precious to Kitty. It really keeps him going when all else fails. Nothing will ever take Dobbin's place. Nothing will ever be so bad that Kitty will feel he can't rely on his horse. I will call you on the 14th. I've almost called you so many times already. And my number at the house in Hampstead, NW3, 11 Squires Mount, is Swiss Cottage 3718. The telephone people are supposed to come to fix it today. I can get calls on it, but can't call out. A good thing, too, I'm thinking. But I will call you on the 14th, if not before. Please keep sending those love waves. I love my darling very, very much. K. P.S. The Horse Kitty Loves has always been an old gray mare, so sweet and dear, and never one of those greedy and faithless white stallions. And besides, gray is more becoming to Kitty's white fur. Two white animals would never do. Kiss, 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 Kay.
1: Alone in California, Chris tried to lose himself in work. He was finishing his seventh novel, Down There on a Visit, four episodes from his first 40 years, presented as possible ways of living. He was also lecturing at UCLA and working with his next-door neighbor, Charles Lawton, the actor, preparing a one-man stage show based on the works of Plato for Lawton to take on the road. He worshipped regularly at the Vedanta Temple in Hollywood. He'd been a devotee of the Hindu holy man Ramakrishna since 1939. His guru was a Hindu monk called Swami Prabhavananda. But Chris wanted to join Don in London. Around the time of their seventh anniversary, Valentine's Day, February 14th, the animals did manage to speak on the telephone. This was a big event in 1961. They agreed Chris would fly to England in April and share in the size and comfort of the Burtons' house. To pay for his trip, Chris chased down some money inherited from his mother after she died in 1960, and he looked for a London scriptwriting job. Meanwhile, Don began to connect with Chris's circle of London friends and to make new friends of his own, often by drawing their portraits. Many of Chris's friends were stars of their world, if not of the whole world. Some had become famous playing roles Chris had created for them. They all seemed to know each other, Don was tiptoeing alone across the Milky Way and he used his drawing talent and his observational skills kind of like a tightrope walker's pole to stay in control and to keep his footing. He was only three or four years old when his mother first started taking him and his older brother to the movies. The faces he'd sketched at home were the faces he'd watched on the screen. It was instinctive in him to observe new acquaintances in silence to watch and learn about them through their gestures and facial expressions, as if he were watching them act. <music> the animals spent six months together in London, including a brief trip to the south of France, where they stayed with Tony Richardson at his farm, Les Beaumet, and visited Somerset Mom at his house, Villa Moresque in Ferrat. Their time together in Europe culminated in the beginning of October 1961, when Don had a debut show of his portraits in the basement of the Redfern Gallery in Mayfair. The opening party on October 2nd was heavily attended by celebrities and the press. It was a moment of triumph and fulfillment for both of them. By the time Chris returned to Santa Monica, Don was launched on a new phase of professional activity. He was inundated with portrait commissions in London, and he began to plan a second show for January 1962 at the Sagittarius Gallery in New York. His success, though, was to threaten the nine-year-old relationship between the animals. The Animals.
0: A selection from the book The Animals Love Letters between Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi presented by Catherine Bucknell Simon Callow as Christopher Isherwood Alan Cumming as Don Bacardi Music by Edmund Jolliffe. If you like this podcast and think more people should hear it please rate it review it and subscribe to it. Join us for Episode 2, Something Bad Has Happened. The Animals Podcast is produced by Catherine Bucknell and Shani Erez. Recorded in London at the Rhythm Studio with James Carey and at Heavy Entertainment with David Roper. Post-production by Toma Run. Editing by Catherine Bucknell and Shani Erez. Website by Zenabi Purvis. Podcast conceived by Joe Rodota with Catherine Bucknell. We would like to thank the Huntington Library, San Marino, California, and the Wiley Agency. Don Bacardi, Catherine Bucknell, Penguin Random House, and Farrah Strauss and Giroux donated rights for this podcast, which is underwritten by the Christopher Isherwood Foundation. Special thanks to cast and creatives for donating time to this podcast. Copyright Don Bacardi, Catherine Bucknell, and The Animals Podcast 2017.